Morning. 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 Like Chris said, my name is Mike from Vintage Church in the Raleigh area. Uh, David Mobley came through. Uh, their church is doing fantastic. They launched a church, and then like a month later, COVID happened. Uh, but they survived. They made it through. They spent actually a lot of their winter um, uh, worshiping in a picnic shelter, like out in the freezing cold. There was one Sunday where it was like freezing cold, sleeting rain, and I think only David and his parents showed up. And it was a, it was a pretty defeating Sunday, but they're doing fantastic, and he's doing great. So um, I'm, a glad, I'm excited to be a part of the, the team that comes through Restoration Church. That's really awesome. Uh, our church is in a series going through the book of Revelation, so that's where we're going to be today. If you have a Bible, it's Revelation 21. Um, I'm going to be very simple today, very straightforward. It's a very famous text. You've probably heard of it before. Um, so I'm just going to be very clear. Uh, where we're going today is that you were made for more than this life. That's it. You were made for more than this life. And that's true whether your life is fun or stressful. That's true whether your life is diseased or healthy. That's true whether your life is sinful or righteous. You were made for more than this life. And today, I just want to remind you of that. And then I want to re-remind you of that. And then I want to re-re-remind you of that until you and I begin salivating over what is to come. You know that thing that happens when someone gives you like a sour piece of candy and it's like your mouth knows what's going to happen. It starts preparing for that's what I want to happen in your life and my life today as we gaze at the beauty and the excellency of Jesus Christ. I want us to begin salivating over what is to come and to begin wringing out our lives in response to it today. We can bet the farm on it, friends. And so that's what we're going to see today. I remember actually a time in my life when this became true to me. I don't even think I was a believer in a lot of ways. I was reading C.S. Lewis in undergrad at NC State, Go Pack. And I don't know why I was reading C.S. Lewis, uh, but I was. And I remember I came across a, a section of his writing where I felt like the, the logic was bulletproof. I mean, it was so good. Like, I wasn't even a believer, and I was like, man, this guy gets it. Like, this angst in my heart, the, this confusion in my heart, he gets it. This is what he says. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there's such a thing as sex. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. I think you know Lewis is right. Have you ever had that moment in life where you, um, you're doing something and you think you're more you in that moment than you've been previously? Like maybe you're playing a sport and it's so difficult for everyone else, but for you and your body, it just kind of happens so naturally. You just feel kind of more like yourself or... Um, 
like if you hang out with friends that you haven't seen in like a million years and instantly you click like right back into it's like no time has passed and you laugh until your stomach hurts you can have that thought of like man I was made for this this is amazing or maybe it's when you sing or play an instrument for someone you just have this this feeling like in that moment I am more me than I have been previously or than I was before this moment C.S. Lewis is saying that those things are winks from the father to show you and I that we were made for something we were made for something so great and so beautiful and so amazing that John in Revelation has to use interesting symbols and textures to really kind of tease it out for us. And so that's what we're going to see today. I want to show you three things, that you were made for a new place, you were made for a new people, and you were made for a new marriage. Place, people, marriage. There's actually way more than that in there, but that's all we're going to do today. And so what I want to do today is I want to just unpack those three things. But before I do that, I want to make sure I give some time to the one who is making those things new, because that's important as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll really jump into the word. Bow your head with me, please. Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. It is a perfect and withstanding and correct word at all times, and we thank you for it. It is not your word that needs help, Lord, but our understanding of it. So would you help us now? Would you help us understand it well? Would you help us be led by your word and your spirit to make much of your son, for he is worthy. And we ask all this in his precious name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So let's start in Revelation 21, 5 and 6. Let's start in the middle. The word of God says this, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. In the passage, we see that God is making all things new. Bad things, good things, scary things, fun things, you things, me things. They're all becoming new things, and that this has always been the plan. Your Bible began with God and man in a garden. There was perfect communion between God and man, man and man, and man in creation. And God is going to return everything to that. But sin has ruined it in your life and mine. But God has a good end game that he is working towards. You see, this is the second time in Revelation that we see quotation marks around something God is saying. That's really important. In the whole book of Revelation, uh, this is only the second time that we see God speaking audibly over us. The other one was in Revelation 1.8. You don't need to turn there because the words are, are similar to what we just read. In other words, it is God speaking audibly over John, over us, saying, this is who I am. These are my characters. These are, these are my attributes. This is why you can trust me. He says things like, uh, I am trustworthy. Write this down in ink, take it to the bank, bet the farm on it. I am no liar. He says that he is true. Our God never deviates from his plan and in, in his making, in his creating, in his recreating. Uh, there's no deviation for our God. He is always perfect, and he is speaking that audibly over us now. Look what he said in the passage. He said in 5 and 6, it is done. That's unique, right? It is done. Not it could be done, not it might be done, not it should be done, not maybe it will be done if you live right or do the right things. No, he says it is done, period. It's really important. This is why Paul, waxing poetically about our salvation in Ephesians, can say this. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And now here's the famous part. You can finish it in. It says, by grace you have been saved. And we love to put a period right there. By grace you have been saved, period. But Paul didn't. And so let's read on. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Did you see that? That is the doneness of God. Like in some weird way, you have not only been saved, but this doneness, this resurrection life has been already credited to you. It has already been offered to you in a unique way. 
And this, this is all over Revelation. We see this in the Alpha and the Omega as well. Our God is over the beginning and the end. He quoted at the beginning of the book. Now he's quoting at the end of the book. That's really important. It means that our God is not the God who uh, turns up the world like a clock and then lets it spin. That's how a lot of people like to talk about it. Like God starts everything and then pulls away and just lets mayhem and, and corruption just happen. That's not how our God functions. And he doesn't just start everything and then leave and then come back and end everything. But we have a God who has been guiding and permitting and allowing and working in ways that you and I do not understand. And sometimes you and I do not enjoy and in timings you and I do not understand, and sometimes timings that we don't enjoy for a greater glory and a greater purpose. And this is really what you should be celebrating every week at Restoration Church. I don't get the opportunity to come here every week, but I hope this is what you're celebrating, is that God has done everything in himself necessary for you to be made right, that Jesus Christ has done it all. Paul said in Ephesians that you were dead to sin, not you needed rescue, not you needed help, not you needed a leg up. You were dead, face down, dead to sin, and you needed a resurrection. And our God, who is rich in mercy, has brought you alive by the work of Christ. It is a free and yet costly salvation has been given to you. And it has implications for your life today, this Sunday morning, but it also has future implications of a life with Christ. And I begin there today. I begin there today because this matters immensely. Chris's prayer kind of teased this out as well. Look, if, if we don't start here, then everything I'm about to tell you is hopeful. Everything I'm about to tell you is well wishes. Everything I'm about to tell you is like, I hope, I hope it goes this way, but who can know, right? Who knows what happens after one kicks the bucket, you know? I don't know what's on the other side. But because of who God is and because of the character that he speaks over us here, we know that we can take this to the bank. We can bet the farm on it. We can wring out our lives in response to it because our God is no liar. That's the character and the attributes of the God who is speaking to us today. And now let's see what are those things that we will receive. The first is a new place. We see this in one. You see it in the beginning of two. You see it in verse seven as well. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. I just skipped to verse seven. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my people. John is using some really interesting uh, imagery and texture there to show you and I a couple truths. The first is this, that there is going to be a new place, but that new place is really not new the way you might think of it. It's actually a recreating of the old place. So God's going to make all things new. He's not just going to make new things. Does that make sense? He's trying to show us that as well. And then also he's trying to say that this new place is actually where you are now. Like that new place is going to come to you, not you are going to leave and go to that new place. He says that, hey, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, life began in this perfect relationship in a garden. Yeah, it's going to end there as well, but that garden will be revamped and revived and, and, and redecorated into a garden city. And John says something unique. It might have caught you guys uh, living in Wilmington that there's no sea in this place. That should make you worry a little bit. How you understand the ocean and how I understand the ocean is way different than the original hearers. You guys love the ocean. I assume that's why you live here. Uh, I, I assume that's one of the benefits of living here. My wife and I love it as well. Uh, see, us as Americans, in the time period we live in, we want to vacation at the ocean. We want to live at the ocean. We want to retire beside the ocean. That's not how the original hearers heard this. The original hearers thought the ocean was the place of chaos 
It was a place of evil. It was a place of darkness. It was like this place that uh, wreaked havoc on the world. It could not be tamed, and so they were fearful of the ocean. And you actually see this all throughout the book of Revelation. Anytime the sea is mentioned, it's usually always mentioned in a bad way. The beast is coming up out of the sea or returning to the sea, or Babylon is practicing their dark arts on the sea. And so John here saying that there's no sea doesn't mean there is no body of water in the next life. It actually means that there's no sin, there's no darkness, there's no destruction, there's no evil, there's no beast, uh, there's no depression, there's no infertility, there's no, there's no cancer in the next life. He's saying, hey, it's a world that is free from anything that could cause destruction or discord or darkness in any kind of way. And he's using texture to kind of tease that out. It's like a world with perfectly mowed grass that, that never grows weeds. I need that. Or a world with trees that don't fall on things. Instead, they bear shade. Come on, sister. Instead, they bear shade and fruit in every season. It's a world with weather that enhances only. I don't know what it's like. It's a kind of a nice day here. In Raleigh right now, you like shower and then walk out the front door to go to work and you just sweat. Like all day, you just sweat. That's all you do. Yeah, it'll be, it won't be like that. It'll be weather that just enhances all the time, just adds to the day. And if you think about it, a lot of our occupations today are about kind of beating back uh, darkness in kind of a way. Think about it. There won't be firefighters in the next life because there won't be any fires out of place, right? Uh, there won't be any police officers in the next life because there will be no offenses to police, right? There won't be any counselors because you won't need any counseling. There won't be any lawyers because there will be no laws to uphold. There won't be any doctors or EMS workers or nurses because nothing will be out of place. Nothing will need be diseased. Nothing will need to be repaired. I won't have to do any funerals in the next life because death will be just a memory. And look at what John said in verse 7. I skipped to it. He says, this land will be ours. It will be yours. Not, not like uh, God's the landlord and you're the tenant and you're allowed to live there. No, it's going to be a family plot. It's going to be your land, and it's going to be my land. It's going to be a family land, and it's going to be beautiful. John said that everyone will be considered as sons. As sons, that's interesting, right? In the original context, right, all the inheritance went to the sons, and so he's saying, hey, everyone will be like a son. Everyone will get a beautiful inheritance, and this should be such an encouragement for you and I. Like, pause here. This should be such an encouragement. What does this mean? It means you were made for a place, and you are not there yet. You feel lonely, outcast, like you don't fit. Sometimes life this side of eternity just seems so broken or so weird or so hard to keep up with sometimes. There's a million plates in the air. You're spinning them all trying to keep things from falling. Praise God. You're not made for this place. Your time here is, is so short. It is so short. And yet you will have eternity in a place that you were actually made for. It means if your life is going perfect, anyone in here? Uh, show of hands. Uh, you couldn't write a better story for yourself. If that's you, praise God. We praise God for you, friend. We really do. Uh, but uh, it, that means even those best days are really just a shadow of what's to come. There's a little wink from the Father of what you were actually created for. And now you know this, a place is awesome. Like a great beach house is awesome. A great restaurant is awesome. Beautiful weather is awesome. But if you don't have anyone to enjoy it with, it's less awesome than it could be. That makes sense? Like if, if I give you a, a three-week stay at a beach house with 40 rooms and boats and jet skis and uh, movie room and, you know, just the best ever, and you go there alone, it will not be as fun 
as if you could bring your friends or your family with you. And so it's not just that the place is awesome, it's also that this awesome place is designed for a perfected people. We see that in verses 3 and 8. We'll do 3 first. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. All throughout the Old Testament, God had been preparing and forming a bride for himself, a people for himself. And if you look in your Old Testament, it's always referred to as a people, singular, a people for himself. And John's doing something really interesting here in the original language. He pluralizes it. He says it's a people's, a people's. Why would he do that? He has something in view that he talked about earlier, which is that this place and this people will be filled with diversity. People from all nations, tribes, and tongues will be present there. That's how John refers to this people. And not only will it be a diverse family, it will be a perfect family with no sin present. There's no backbiting. There's no uh, passive-aggressive texts. There's no leaving someone uh, red. There's no um, misunderstanding someone's words. There's no competition. There's no pride. Uh, There's no sin present. It will be a perfectly diverse and yet perfectly uh, like sinless family. And it, it, will, be, it will be awesome. It, I'm just going to try to tease out how awesome it will be. Uh, it's it's going to be like there's no false motives and there's no discomfort and there's no awkwardness and there's no pain ever with everyone you come in contact with. But it's actually even more than that. It, it, you will be more you in a way uh, because of the presence of other people. Because of the presence of other people. Have you ever met someone and they're like really interested in something that you're interested in and instantly there's like this little connection between you? Like you're really into golf and then you meet this person at work and they're really into golf and it's like, man, we're friends already. Or, or um, like uh, you really like this certain TV show and you find out that they really like this TV show and it's like walls just drop immediately. It actually works best if you're into some like really weird things. Like if you collect crockpots, and you think you're like the only person in the world that loves crockpots, and then you meet someone and they collect crockpots, and just as many as you, it's in those moments, it just feels like walls come crashing down between you two, and you're like instantly close. Imagine that with every person you come in contact with every day. That is what it will be like with this perfected family. But really, it's deeper than that. You'll be more you than you have ever been because of the presence of others. More you than you've ever been. C.S. Lewis was super helpful here. Um, he, he writes a lot about friendship, and the writings have been very dear for me. Uh, he talks about this group of three friends, or him and two other friends that he had. And three guys, and they all had the same intellect and the same wit, and they all had the same hobbies. They were just like little, three little peas in a pod, and they just loved each other. They just had a hoot all the time with one another, and then one of them passed away. And he noticed something really interesting that only C.S. Lewis would actually think about, which is that uh, one friend passed away, and his other friend, there were aspects of his character and his personality that kind of died with the friend. That he couldn't tease out certain things. It was actually the other friend that was teasing out those things. Does that make sense? He says it way more beautiful. He says it like this. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there's an aspect of you and there's an aspect of me that can only be brought out in community. Now imagine if that community is a perfected people. In other words, you'll be more you than you have ever been. There will be no sin present, no competition present. The Thanksgiving meals will not be awkward. 
Christmas meals with extended family will not be awkward. It will be everything you will be wanting and needing. But John is clear, and he goes there, and so we must as well, that not everyone will be a part of this people. He says that in verse 8. He says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. John is clear, and so we must be as well, that not everyone will be a part of this perfected people. And those who are not a part of the perfected people will receive an inheritance that is as bad as the others is good. Now, a couple of things to tease out here. The first is this, I find, I'm not speaking this to you, or I'm speaking it to you, not over you, as if you do this, but I find a lot of times when there's lists like that, those dangerous kind of lists, a lot of times we kind of jump through them really quickly and try to see which one of those we are or which one we are not. We're like, sorcerers? I don't even know what that is. Like, I'm definitely not that thing, right? It's just not the way to look at it. Just to put very simply, you are all those things, and I'm all those things. The reason you are in Christ today is not because you're not those things, and other people are those things, and those are bad people. The reason you're in Christ is because Christ has taken all of those things from you on himself, right? In other words, uh, he took your lying, and he took your cowardice, and he took your idolatry, and he took your sexual immorality, and he took it on himself. And what did you receive, friend? You received his perfect and righteous life. Remember, Paul said, it is by grace that you have been saved. So let's start there. We must remember that. The only reason you are in Christ today is because he has taken all of those things on himself. That is good news for you and me. That's why we're here today. That's why we should be singing uh, to him constantly. But also, we must look at the list because there's something interesting that John has in view here. If you look how he starts and ends the list, those are very important things when you're studying the Bible. He starts it with cowardly, and he ends it with liars. It's very important. It shows us who John really has in view, who he is really, really talking to. He's taking us back to Revelation 3, I think, where he's talking to the church in Laodicea in a lot of ways. You see, what was happening in this time period is that uh, following Jesus was becoming difficult. They were living in a culture that didn't think Jesus was all that special. And so there was, uh, there was um, suffering, and there was persecution, and people were losing their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And the holy living that Jesus requires was not so popular in the world they were living in. It's hard enough to try to live the life that Jesus desires, but now you're living it in a culture that doesn't think it's actually a good way to live. And so what was happening is a lot of people were recanting or turning from their profession as faith. They had originally professed to be believers, and now they were no longer. They were being found as cowards and as liars. John seems to have those people in view. The way we word it in our society today is nominal. That's just a fancy word for Christian in name only. In profession only is they are a Christian. He means if you had a camera crew follow their life all week, there would be nothing in their life that is distinct. Nothing in their life would be seasoned. Nothing in their life would be Christian, remotely Christian at all. This is who John has in view, and this is why it is still good news, because the offer is still the same. Oh, are you cowardly? Are you a liar? Are you nominal? Uh, do you show up somewhere on Sunday, but your bank account and your missionality and your desire to share the gospel and for all nations to be reached is your, uh, your family and job and success and money more important than Jesus Christ himself, then the good news is still good news for you. It's that Jesus has taken all that on himself. Would you repent and believe him afresh? Would you surrender to him afresh? This is what John is saying. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean that you and I were made for a new people, and we ain't at that new people now, and so let's just buy a mountain Let's move there and just wait it out, right? Build a little compound around this building 
and just stay in here, right? Lock everyone else out. No, part of uh, living in Jesus' kingdom means we work for the ending today. That means you and dwelt with the Spirit uh, should be making a difference in this world by, by the Lord's Spirit. It means this community should be different because of Restoration Church. They might not agree with us. They might not agree with a lot of our stances, but they, they should weep if this church were to close its doors. It means your neighborhood should be different. People should know that you are a believer. They should know that you are a Christian, and your neighborhood should be different because of it. Your, uh, your workplaces, your office should be different as well. Coworkers should know that you are believers. They, they might not agree with everything you say and how you live, but man, would they weep if you left because you were nothing but good and gracious and merciful to them. This is what it requires of you and I. But John is clear. It's not just a place and it's not just a people that we are made for. We are also made for a marriage. And this is like so much more important than the first two. So that's why we're going to do it last. I'll lay in the plane here. Verses two through four, John says this. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, most importantly, if you are in Christ, you and I will enter into the marriage that we were made for. The marriage that only the best earthly marriages are a mere shadow, like drop in the bucket in comparison to. All throughout history, God has been preparing and forming a bride for himself. This is happening in your life and my life. That's why he is sanctifying us and sanding us and growing us towards perfection so that we will be with him in a perfected land, with a perfected people, in a perfect relationship. And you and I will finally dwell with our new love, well, sorry, with our true love. And look how John writes about it. You kind of tease this out in your prayer, and I really appreciate you doing that. Look how he writes about it. Uh, he doesn't say um, uh, it's going to be great or it's going to be good. Those would work. Like, he could have done that. Instead, what he does is he talks about what will not be there. These things will not be there. And he does that on purpose to help you and I begin salivating and hoping over what is to come. He says, tears, yeah, th those things are gone. Those things are gone. Your spouse has wiped them away. Death, gone. Your spouse is taking it on himself so you wouldn't have to taste it again. Mourning and sadness, they're gone. Your true spouse embraced a life of mourning and sadness so that you wouldn't have to taste it again. Emotional, spiritual, physical pain, those things will be gone. Your true spouse nailed them to himself so that you wouldn't have to suffer eternity with them. And what is left? Well, it's Jesus Christ himself for you and for me. Our true love, our true spouse, where all our hopes and desires and ambitions find their fulfillment Jesus Christ himself. It will be like an intimacy you can't imagine. Like all these, all these images I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm not saying they're true. I'm just saying they're like the best way I can try to paint the picture for you. It'll be like an intimacy you can't imagine. Imagine a husband and wife on their wedding day, that kind of intimacy. They're close. They've waited. It's amazing. That's just a drop in the bucket, though, of what you will experience. It's like almost not even worth mentioning of what you will experience with Christ. Look at, look at what he said there. He didn't say tears will be gone. He said tears will be wiped away. That's so personal, right? Isn't that so intimate? Like if you come up to me after service today and you're crying, I will pray for you. I will get you a Kleenex. I might hug you. Like I might hug you, but I'm not going to reach across and like that's weird, right? That's way too personal. It's way too personal. That's way too intimate. Like only my son's get that treatment from me, right? You probably wouldn't even want me to do that to you. It's awkward, right? And yet that is how it's being talked about of you and I with Jesus. 
It'll be a friendship you can't even imagine. Imagine a husband and wife on their like 70th wedding anniversary. They like dress the same. They've started to look the same. Like <laughs> they, they don't even talk anymore because they always know what each other's thinking. They can finish each other's sentences. There is nothing that would surprise these people about the other one. They know it all. It's like extreme comfort. And that's just a drop in the bucket in comparison to what you and I will experience with Christ. A fruitfulness you can't imagine. Even this side of eternity, and Restoration Church is doing a good job here, even this side of eternity, the family can be a very fruitful thing. Uh, One sinful husband and one sinful wife can produce multiple kids who can make multiple kids who can make multiple kids, and it's like this exponential family tree growth, and that is with sin and darkness and destruction present. Oh, the fruitfulness in the next life will be uh, uncorked. It will be amazing. It will be you and I with Jesus, our King, our Creator, our true love, our true spouse, what your heart has been wanting and longing for your whole life and been trying to find in different things like career and success and money and relationships and love will all find its fulfillment in him. And you will see uh, as the clouds part that it was all about him the whole time. It'll be a beautiful marriage. As a pastor, I get the, the joy and the blessing of performing marriages. It is so fun. It is so fun when you know the couple. And I, I've, I've done a few weddings, and uh, I've never been to one that's perfect. Uh, that something always goes wrong. It, it, you just prepare them for that. You're just like, something's going to break, I promise you. Um, weddings are, it's like a high-stakes affair with, that has been planned by amateurs, and then they're under pressure. And so it's like, something ain't going to go right. I can promise you that. And by God's grace, I've never been to like a super bad wedding. Um, I've never had to officiate a really bad one. I'm always terrified that it's going to be the one where someone walks out or something like that, but it's never happened to me. I've just had wedding or sorry, weather problems and stuff like that. But some pastors get the joy of experiencing some really bad weddings. I want to close out today by describing one of them for you. Uh, There's a pastor named Robert Fulgham. He talks about a wedding that he had that he was officiating. Uh, That was the wedding of all weddings. It was a nightmare. Uh, He lovingly referred to the person funding the wedding as the MOTB, that's the mother of the bride, and he referred to her like that because she was ridiculous. She was exhausting. She was funding the whole affair, so everything went the way she wanted it to go. Everything had to be engraved. Everything had to be monogrammed. There was like an 18-piece brass and wind ensemble because nothing less than that would do. She felt like the engagement ring was just like a little bit too small for her family, and so she took it back to the jeweler privately and had a bigger rock put on. That's a true story. She really did. She was over the top, and no one could say anything about it because she was funding everything, so you just kind of had to bend to her the whole time, and the pastor was miserable because she called him nonstop. He was more in touch with her than he was the couple that he was marrying. It was crazy, and she wanted it to be a wedding for the history books, and it was, just not in the way that she was expecting. This is how he picks up the story. He says this, Ah, the bride. She had been dressed for hours, if not days. There was no adrenaline left in her body. Left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church, she walked along the tables laden with gourmet goodies and absentmindedly sampled the first little pink, yellow, and green mints. And then she picked through the silver bowls of mixed nuts and ate the pecans, followed by a cheese ball or two, some black olives, a handful of glazed almonds, a little sausage with a frilly toothpick stuck in it, a couple of shrimps blanketed in bacon, and a cracker piled with liver pate, and to wash this down, a glass of pink champagne that her father gave her to calm her nerves. And what you notice as the bride stood in the doorway was not her dress, but her face. It was white. For what was coming down the aisle was a living grenade with the pin pulled out. The bride threw up just as she walked by her mother 
And by threw up, I don't mean a polite little ladylike burp into her handkerchief. I mean, she puked. There's just no nice word for it. I mean, she hosed the front of the chancel, hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bearer, and me. And having disgorged her hors d'oeuvres, her champagne, and the last of her dignity, the bride went limp in her father's arms, while the groom sat down on the floor where he had been standing, too stunned to function, and the MOTB fainted, slumping over in ragdoll disarray. And we had a fire drill then and there at the front of the church that only the Marx Brothers could have topped. Groomsmen rushed about heroically, many princess flower girls squalled, bridesmaids sobbed, and people with weak stomachs headed for the exits. All the while, unaware, the orchestra played on. The bride had not only come, she was gone into some other state of consciousness, and the smell of fresh wretch drifted across the church, and only two people were seen smiling, one of them being the mother of the groom. Come on. Come on. He goes on to say, he goes on to say that they gather. They regather. They regroup. The bride has to take off her dress and put on one of the bridesmaids' dresses, who she did not ruin, um, and she has to hold on to her groom the whole time because she is so sick that she can't even stand on her own. And she just muffles her way through the vows that they get it done. They get it done. But the interesting thing that I, I like about the story, which is why I wanted to tell it today, is what happens later. Ten years later, everyone regathered. They sent out invitations. Ten years later, they sent out invitations, and the whole wedding party got together to rewatch the affair. Remember, the mother of the bride was over the top, so she had like three different videographers, right? So they had all the footage you would ever want. And you know what they did? They regathered. Everyone was there. They dressed casually. They enjoyed good food, and they laughed their heads off. They laughed their heads off. Even the mother of the bride was seen laughing at the absurdity of the moment. So let's close with this. Friends, what does that? How does something going so poorly, so wrong on every level, going the exact way that the bride did not want it to go, the exact way the mother of the bride did not want it to go, how does it end in warmth and laughter and joy and fun and community? How does it do that? You know. It's because the guy got the girl, right? Right? She got the better prize. She got the thing that she would not change that wedding day for. Was it the wedding she wanted? I would assume no. Was it the wedding that the mother of the bride planned for? I would assume no. But was it worth it in the end? It was absolutely worth it. Friends, hear me. Is this side of eternity difficult? You better believe it. If not, you're doing something wrong. It is difficult. Is living in a post-Christian secular culture where Jesus is not seen as important or to be cherished difficult. It is. And it's getting harder day by day. That's my summation. Is following Christ towards holiness and away from sinful desires, does that always feel like sacrifice and surrender? Yeah, it will. It'll always feel costly. Does forsaking money and comfort for the cause of Christ always seem dangerous? Always seem like uh, something that would be hard to do? Yes, it does. Do sin and mental struggles and temptation and evil itself seem so taxing and near and dangerous at all times? Yes, they do. But we cannot forget where it ends up. You will get Christ. You will get him, the lover of your soul. You see, I don't know what uh, news anchors will do in the next life. I don't watch a lot of news, but they pretty much only report bad things. Sorry if you're a news anchor in the room. I'm sure you're great, but they seem to only report bad things. You know what I hope? 24-7 interviews, you and me, baby, 24-7 interviews, talking about life before Christ and now. And I guarantee you, every single one of us, with absolute certainty, will look at the camera and say, he was worth it. 
he was worth it. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Friends, he is worth it. Jesus Christ is worth it. He's worth wringing out our lives in response to. He's worth betting the farm, writing it in ink, uh, forsaking money and family uh, for his mission and his good news. He's worth it. And my wife and I want to wring out our lives in response to that. And I invite you to do the same as well. I hope you would in this place and in this city. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to sing to him and talk to him. So let me pray for us, and then we'll do that.